Welcome to the Red Clinic Podcast. I'm Dr. Shwalen, pediatric psychologist and expert in the treatment of eating disorders. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Tyler Wooten, pediatric psychiatrist and medical director at Eating Recovery Center here in Dallas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I would like it, if you don't mind, before we even introduce the topic, if you would just kind of say a little bit about yourself, um, your, your experience treating eating disorders, and basically just tell the audience why they should listen to you in the first place. <laughs> oh gosh, it goes back pretty far. Um, actually, 30 years ago, I started out as a tech at the uh, now uh, charter hospitals, but I don't think they're, they're functioning anymore. But uh, after about six months of working with kids and teenagers, I I loved it so much that that was when I made up my mind that I was going to go to medical school only to become a pediatric psychiatrist. Okay. Uh, laser focused. I was laser focused. I knew what I wanted to do. And by the time I hit junior year in med school and being in surgical rotations and, you know, just standing there sweating, holding a clamp or a retractor or something like that. It, it would never fail that one of the old surgeons would look at me and say, son, what kind of doctor do you want to be? And there I am all gowned up and I'd say a pediatric psychiatrist. <laughs> and every single time it stopped the surgery. Wow. And they, they, they almost all would say the exact same thing. Don't you want to be a real doctor? I've heard that myself. Right. <laughs> and I go, no, I'm here to become a pediatric psychiatrist. That's what I want to do. And shortly thereafter, I, you know, go into my internship and residency and child psychiatry fellowship and join faculty at UT Southwestern. And I had had some exposure to eating disorders prior to that. Uh, but at the time, that was really what we were focused on, on that general pediatric unit, uh, which was treating eating disorders. And so uh, even though I'd had some exposure, even 30 years ago, I'd had exposure to patients with eating disorders. That was when I really developed the love for it because it was so psychodynamically rich. Mm -hmm. And I love the psychodynamic aspect of everything that I do. Um, that that when it, that's I mean, that was really all she wrote. I had to do it. And, that's amazing. And I've done it ever you since. just knew you just, just knew, knew and it kind of yeah. found you. Yeah. That's and amazing. it's the challenge because it's the hardest thing to do in it psychiatry mm -hmm. uh, and in psychology. So, yeah, it's it is. It's that awesome. challenge. It keeps us going. And it's that transformation, right, that we get it to is. see in our clients that that make it all worth it and really watch them get better. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, incredible. that's what keeps us. In, that's yeah. what keeps us coming back every day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're a true pioneer in our field. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think so. So so let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. It's about talking. Let's talk about talking. I'm excited. Um, we're actually going to talk with with you all today about, you know, being affected by having a loved one with an eating disorder, parents especially with children, and how to talk back, right? So what does yeah. that mean? So you're, you know, when you have a loved one, you're very used to just talking to them, especially if it's your kid. You talk to them all the time. Mm -hmm. They are in some either very superficial conversation with you because they're like, everything's fine, nothing's wrong, it's okay, leave me alone. And then if your loved one develops an eating disorder, you start having different conversations and, and parents can't always differentiate the difference between talking with their child 
and talking to their eating disorder. That's really good. Yeah. Even so, just saying it like that is mind-blowing. So there is a learning curve to learn how to talk to an eating disorder when the eating disorder is talking at you. It's not really talking with you. It's talking at you. And there is a skill set that, that has to be sort of learned and practiced. And uh, families that come more and more and more to family education that we have, um, they, they make comments like, this is working. It's really paying off. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, and it, sometimes it makes them mad, you know, because their, their kid will say, you sound just like them. Right. Well, okay. I mean, maybe we do. Well, that's because they're being trained by the best. Maybe we do. Oh, stop. <laughs> so, so let's talk about this for a second, because I, I think it's going to be helpful for our audience to understand just the evolution of how you even started talking to parents about this. So you mm -hmm. alluded to family education at ERC. Mm -hmm. So what, what is that and what's your role in that? And then I guess what's the data that you were collecting? I guess parents may have been coming with these types of questions over and over again. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's how this came about. So kind of tell us that story. So family education has been going on um, in my life since way before I ever worked at ERC, even, even before ERC even existed. Um, and then when I joined ERC in 2015, my, the first thing that I said was I have to be doing family education. So I started doing family education again. And right now, uh, it's split between my work wife and I, you know, Dr. Stephanie Settler. Yeah. <laughs> so I run every Monday night uh, from four to five, and she runs every Tuesday morning. Um, she has uh, our, our sort of local experts that work with us that give different lectures, uh, like uh, emotion-focused family therapy, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy lectures, so trauma lectures. So we, she actually has sort of uh, on a cycle, people that are working with us that are giving the families different lectures on different things. And sometimes it's just her talking. Um, and then uh, it was twice a month, but when COVID broke out, we had to stop all in-house uh, family education. So right now, until we are able to fully open up our doors again, once a month I run a men's group. So it's just, it's not just dads, but it's mostly dads. Okay. And sometimes it's husbands and uncles and granddads and brothers and what have you. Um, uh, and then right after that, um, I've, I started doing just a few months ago, the talk back boot camp, and I created it because for 20 years, parents will always ask me, it happens every time I do family education. My child said this to me, what should I have said back? Mm -hmm. Uh, and because I've done those questions over and over again. I did, I did, I did, I did the talk back boot camp on Saturday and by Monday I had more of those questions. Um, and it dawned on me that I talk to eating disorders all day long. You talk to eating disorders yes. all day long yeah. and I know how to do it. And so do you, what do you even think about it? Right. It doesn't even, it, it's such an automatic sort of response and affect regulation and non-judgmental conversations. It's and a language we're fluent language. in, yeah. right? Yeah. Verbal and nonverbal. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that's when I decided to create this boot camp for parents. Um, and, and the more I've done it, 
I also realize that I need to do it more than w- once a month. Right. Yeah. I, there's it, such there's a need such a for demand it. And, right. and it's really fun. And, the, you know, the parents really, uh, I think they get a kick out of me because I'm kind of goofy anyway. Mm-hmm. And they like it. And, and it's fun because you can see that it's making the mm-hmm. difference that they need. It is. You're difference. really helping people. Yeah. And, you know, ERC and the Red Clinic, anyone that really knows how to treat eating disorders are going to take that family-based approach. Right. Right. And so the fact that it's just so woven into the regular schedule there mm-hmm. is, it's just great. And I'm glad that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. So why don't we jump in and teach us a new language, Dr. Wooten? Okay. All right. So what are some of the questions that normally come up? What are the examples that parents are giving you? You know, they, they went home with their child that night and they come back in the morning and they say, oh my goodness, this happened. How should I have responded? Mm-hmm. Um, give me, give me a question. And let's okay. Let me think. Hmm, we should Just, have done a little prepping beforehand. Okay, it's all right. <laughs> um, okay. So Grandma came over last night, and she said to my daughter that she's she's so proud of her because she looks so much healthier, and now my daughter thinks that means she's fat. What should I have said to that? Right. I get that question just about every single time. Yeah. That there is a parent that has said it. There was a dad actually in the men's group that said he had said to his young adult daughter, you look so much better. Right. And then the, his daughter immediately said, you can't say that to me. You can't say that to me because the eating disorders interpretation is now you're fat. Yeah. Yeah. So I immediately kind of got into this little conversation with that particular dad. And I said, okay, here, if, if I were to slip and say, you look a lot better. And my patient says to me, I can't believe you said that to me. You now that means I'm fat. I would say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That was a little bit of my bad. That was a slip of my tongue. And I apologize for saying that because I can hear how your eating disorder would really take that and run with it because uh, this has already been so hard for you in treatment. Mm -hmm. So the secret to validating is to make a statement and then add a because and certainly never a but, but a because, and then you say something that is very true to this, to where they are in their treatment and their recovery. It doesn't matter what it is, but you're really, you're not only hearing them, but you're giving them a little bit of feedback about how you're trying to understand what it must be like to be them. And then what I teach parents all the time So if you've made that blunder, you apologize, you're gonna validate their feelings. And then the next thing that you're gonna do is try to engage them in a conversation. And the best way to engage anybody in a conversation is a question. Mm -hmm. So ask them a question. What was that like for you when I said that? Mm -hmm. What, What did it mean to you? I bet it did. I bet it did because of what, you know, dot, dot, dot. How else, what else did your mind do with that? Dot, dot, dot. What did your eating disorder want to do with that? If I make that statement, what does your eating disorder tell you to do? So just engage them in a very non-judgmental conversation. So, I mean, here's what I'm hearing you say, right? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what we're talking about again. Okay. So essentially, as a person listening to that, right, I'm hearing um, there's no room for me as a parent to defend myself. That's not the point. I'm Mm -hmm. not supposed to say that's not what I meant. I'm not supposed to get into that essentially pointless argument with Mm -hmm. the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what I meant instead. I'm not supposed to really clarify that. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to just understand 
mm-hmm. that it's it's coming at me from right. the place of an eating disorder. Right. So I take a step back. Mm-hmm. I don't make it personal. Right. This is not a make or break in my relationship with my son or my daughter. Right. So I don't need to fix it and make sure that they f- they feel better. That's right. And it's not about being right. Okay. Yeah. And that's key, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of this eating disorder language. Mm-hmm. Is understanding it's really not about us. We can't take it personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's it. the other kind of conversation that we have all the time is trying to fix it mm-hmm. and make it better. And or the opposite of that is arguing your point. Uh, a lot of times the kids will be developing a voice like we we are trying to get patients to use their voice in an effective way. And sometimes how they do that is they translate that into a conversation with their parents. They need to tell their parents something. And how do they do that? Well, like any human being, they're going to tell them in a story form about something that happened. Mm -hmm. And so I tell parents all the time, listen, this isn't about whether she's right or wrong or he's right or wrong. It's about her using her voice or him using his voice to communicate to you. And your job is to listen and to validate what it must have been like to be them Mm-hmm. in that moment, regardless of whether it's the correct data. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I'm so glad that was the first example that we, mm-hmm. we worked through. Can you think of another example? <laughs> mm. uh, well, actually, I can probably think about thousands. Um, so one of, the, um, one of the things that parents say all the time, especially when kids are... Uh, shifting from one level of care to the next. They're shifting from residential perhaps to PHP, mm-hmm. whether sleeping at home or sleeping in an apartment with their parents, or they're shifting out of PHP into IOP or IOP into outpatient. Mm-hmm. So there's this transition that happens that, you, I mean, the way to understand eating disorders is that it is a very fear-based disorder. Mm-hmm. It's a very anxiety-based disorder. So they resist change. Change scares them. Uh, they, they can't really think that far ahead into their future. And if they do, they tend to catastrophize it. Mm-hmm. And it's the worst case scenario possible. So when they're in that kind of transition, they will very often say to a parent or a family member, this will never work. It won't happen. I can't get better. Um, I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to fail. I had that conversation with a 15-year-old actually earlier today. Um, it won't matter when I transition to PHP because I'll stop eating and I'll never get better. Yes. I hear that <laughs> even now at outpatient. Right. Literally yesterday I had a patient say, "Right, you know, I know you think that was a breakthrough moment for our family, but those moments have happened in family therapy before and we're still exactly the same. Yeah. We're not going to get better. Yeah. Nothing you do is going to help. Mm-hmm. Right. So when that when a parent presents that question to me, I then move into the question again, and especially there's a little bit of a difference, and I teach parents this. There is a difference in your child or in your loved one when they are in distress, when they are in a state of emotional suffering. That's when really questions and validation becomes extremely important. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes they're in distress, but they're being really naughty, right? They're, they're being quite naughty <laughs> with their words. Yep. And, and, and so the, the, the approach for the parent is different. It's slightly different. So 
if, if they're crying and they're upset and they're wringing their hands and they're fearful and they're uncertain, you are asking questions, but you're really modulating your affect. And if, if people don't know what affect is, it's, it's how we express ourselves verbally with emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they're in that state, you're really using your voice, you're using your eyes, you're using your face. Um, in a very, um, for lack of a better word, pleasant way. You're trying to connect and understand. And calm, cool, collected. Very calm and cool, low mm. and slow, just right. trying to understand. Um, and you do it with questions. Hey, what's going on? I, you look like you're having a really hard time. Tell me, tell me what's going on through your head. You know, so you're just asking some questions and you know, I can come up with question after question after question, but really I don't have to because I'm getting something back from them. Well, I feel this way and I feel that way and I'll never get better. What's, what's, why do you think that right this second? So sometimes it's just reframing it that, that you really just feel it right now. Right. That's this key. Yeah. It's not predicting the future. It's just right this second. Mm-hmm. So, so what are you feeling right now? How, how can I help you right now? How can I support you right now? Should we use some coping skills? Why don't you teach me one of them that you've just learned or... Maybe we should just watch a movie. Maybe we should just sit together and watch a movie. So that's a state of suffering. And there's all kinds of sort of more questions and how to approach that, but it's hard to do with when well, I don't have a patient sitting what, right here. So, but what's what's really, now again, I'm just going to kind of reflect back. And, mm-hmm. and I think the take-home point for the parents listening to this today is in a state of distress, that's what you're calling it, or a state mm-hmm. of suffering, right? First, recognize, again, this is not personal. It's not for you to swoop in, fix, change their mind, it's not about that in that moment. And it's not permanent. Right. It's not permanent. Yeah. And so in that state of suffering, you actually won't get anywhere Mm-mm. if you try to logic it out. No. Right. And logic that's will a, never help. Right. It's a drain on energy mm-hmm. and emotional resources. Right. And it can also further damage if there's some damage there or, or hurt in the parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. So really training parents to kind of, again, take that step back. Mm-hmm get calm, cool, collected. I always say, I always say, be a duck, you know, under the surface, you're, you're, you're flailing and you're stressed, but above the surface, no one can tell kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So be a duck and respond to your child of, Hey, what's going on with you right now? I can Mm -hmm. tell that you're upset. Yeah. And then ask some questions and listen and ask some questions and listen. Yeah. Okay. And you may end up just hearing about their bad day, you know, but the jumping in and fixing it and saying, well, next time I want you to do this, or you should have done that will every time slam a door shut. Yes. And then they're really done talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. And we see it so often, even with teenagers who don't have eating disorders. That's right. right? Yeah, it's very much so. You just want to to listen. And, and to, as I always say, one of my greatest teachers told me this a long, long time ago. She goes, one mind cannot think. It takes at least two minds to think. And I've always loved that. That's so profound. So think with them. Right. Think about things with them. I love it. Yeah. All right. I got another question for you. Okay. Okay. So my child has been referred to a higher level of care and the higher level of care team is now um, recommending residential. Sure. And my child is um, having panic attacks, thinking about spending the night there and being away from home. And how could I do that to them? And we did it anyways. We ripped the Band-Aid off. We went. She's admitted now. Um, and every night when I go to visit her, she is begging me, pulling my heartstrings, telling me, telling me this is the wrong place for me. This is not what she needs. Mm-hmm. And they're 
and the team is treating her very badly. Yeah. I have this conversation almost every single week. Now, what the parent cannot see, uh, because they're not there, is that five seconds prior to the phone call, the kid was fine, the kid was calm, the kid was chatting with other kids, they're playing skip bow or they're playing Uno, they're putting a puzzle together, everything's calm and collected and there's no big deal. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not bubbling under the surface because they want to go home. Now, in my line of work, I tell kids, good, please don't lose that. I never mm -hmm. want you to lose the desire to go home. Absolutely. You are homesick. Of course you're homesick because you've never been away from home. You've never been away from your parents this long before. And this is, this is the hardest thing you've ever done in your entire life. So all of that makes sense. Now, for the parents, if they try to accommodate that anxiety, if they try to fix it, if they try to make it all better, if they try to start talking about timelines, well, just give it a week. Just give it a week. It'll be okay. Let's just see how this goes. Mm -hmm. What actually happens is that the parent is not telling the kid no. And as you well know, in our patient population, our patient population with eating disorders are the smartest, most delightful, most wonderful, most kind, most pleasing kids in the world. Yes, absolutely. They're absolutely wonderful children. Mm -hmm. And adults, for that they matter. They are, yeah. They're absolutely incredibly wonderful. And so the parent has never really, in most cases, never really had the experience of having to tell a perfect child who makes perfect grades, who never gets in trouble, no before. And, and so the parent is trying to soothe the anxiety and make the anxiety calmer and better because it's distressing for them, of course. Mm -hmm. It's like ripping their heart out. And what happens clinically is that the kid latches onto that mm -hmm. and the kid does not begin to engage in the treatment process that is so vital for their right. recovery. They, so they don't start getting better because their absolute agenda is to get out. And so then from then on, every conversation with their parent is take me home, take me home, take me home, take me home. And they will continue that until the parent says no. Right. And, and then they settle in. And that's the, um, the danger or the negative outcome of splitting, right, mm -hmm. from right. the team. And so I imagine at ERC, because I used to do this too when I was at higher levels of care, mm -hmm. uh, we would always, and even now at Outpatient, we have to have the conversation is talk to the families about, you know, we are a team and we need to present as united front. Right. Because if there's even one weak link, that eating disorder will be all over it. Absolutely. It will manipulate everything. Right. So the lovely, wonderful child is not the person who's being manipulating or not manipulative. Right. It, it's the eating disorder yes. that is manipulating the weakest link to get the one thing that they want, which is to get out and continue the eating disorder behavior. Absolutely. It, eating disorder is desperate. E yeah. The eating disorder is doing everything it can to survive in that moment. That's right. Because it's clear that when in treatment, there's a good chance this yeah. child could actually go into recovery. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do you have another example of some questions that come up? see here this is pretty common one um this is 
So when you've got a teenager in PHP, or really at any lower level of care, the, the eating disorder is attempting at every moment to wrap the parent around the finger. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're, especially for the kids, they're teenagers or even sometimes younger than teenagers. Now, what they want is what they want when they want it, and they want it right now, mm-hmm. right? That is the thing that they have not learned how to do, which is delay gratification. Right. They don't know how to do that. Their brain doesn't know how to do that no, yet. No, it doesn't work that way yet. So um, sometimes teaching the parents, especially in lower levels of care, when the kid's with them, especially at night, that anything and everything is tied to treatment and recovery. Yes, I love that. Everything. Yes. It doesn't matter what it is. Mm-hmm. So a uh, perfect example, this delightful young girl who wasn't eating her food in PHP and had started a little bit of slow weight loss. And we were thinking, oh, are we going to have to step back, back up to residential level of care? We don't know yet. But I want to try to get a hold of it while she's in PHP. So she wasn't eating. And then she shows up with her mom in my office on Monday morning. I look at the girl and I go, first of all, where'd you get the nose ring? And second of all, where'd you get the nice new jacket? Yep. You must be on level two, right? Yeah, and <laughs> she wasn't on level two. <laughs> I know, right? And, and the mom said, oh, <laughs> she really wanted to go to the mall and she really wanted to get her nose pierced. And I go, yeah, mom, but she's not doing her treatment. She's not actually working towards recovery. So... Uh, that those two things don't really go together. Nose rings, new jackets, and not doing what you need to be doing treatment. Those, you can't align those. Yep. So the overall message that we need parents to understand and incorporate and adopt is you cannot have your life in all its fullness and fun and your eating disorder at the same time. Absolutely. You cannot put those two things together. Right. And that, I think, is very hard even outpatient with our mm-hmm. parents. Mm-hmm. They really struggle with that. You yeah. know, there are clients who I have to have the conversation with parents all the time that your child needs a higher level of care. We've got to get you in for an assessment. This right. is not outpatient functioning. And they say, well, you know, they the recommendation was residential. Mm-hmm. And we have a family vacation coming up. What am I supposed to tell my child that they're going to miss out on this? Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, given the time of year, school's going to start. It's right around the corner. Mm-hmm. That's no way to start at a brand new middle school, having to explain where they were on the first few weeks of school and when they first started. You know, there's all these things that come up in terms mm-hmm. of look at all the things my child will miss out on if we actually pursue treatment. It's all true. It's 100 yes. percent true. Um, and then the only thing that we can say to that is that eating disorders are life destroyers, including, including maybe not surviving it right. because somebody's going to die from an eating disorder every hour. Yes, exactly. And, and so, yes, it may be, um, really difficult and, um, and certainly inconvenient at, at the, the least it's right. inconvenient. Um, but what parents need to understand is that if this is their first experience with their child's eating disorder and it is creeping up on you and it looks like it is a, it is, it, it, it is a, it is a 
experience of watching a train leave a station and you're going to watch it pick up speed, getting that kid into treatment quickly, full treatment, and getting into recovery as fast as we possibly can, if there's weight loss, especially if there's significant weight loss, Mm -hmm. you have to restore that weight back to a healthy place again fully for there ever to be a chance of recovery. Yes. And when that doesn't happen, then unfortunately, and we don't like to say it, but it is job security. Mm-hmm. When they don't listen to us, mm-hmm. how vital and imperative it is to have a full course of treatment and full weight restoration because the brain has taken a massive hit, massive hit from, from weight loss. And once weight is restored, the brain may take one to four to five years to actually recover from significant malnutrition. Yes. So it's it's actually imperative that that happen. And if they don't do it, and, and they wait and wait and wait, it's going to be harder and it's going to take longer. And the illness has got more of a hold on the kid and the potential for relapse and treatment and relapse and treatment and relapse and treatment skyrockets. So acting quickly is imperative because you keep the majority of patients out yes. of our hospital. Relapse prevention or rehospitalization. Yeah. You keep them out right. of our hospital, yes. which is what which is imperative. Right. Yeah. Walking alongside them in true recovery. Right. And it takes a long time. It does. Um, I, I love that you said, you know what, all of that is true. This is going to be extremely discom- mm-hmm. you know, uncomfortable for your yeah. child and for your family. You're essentially putting your life on hold yeah. to prioritize their health. And and there's nothing else that we would recommend. Yeah, right? there, there's because no way around it. The stakes are too high. I had a dad bring his son all the way to us from Saudi Arabia. And the dad to inpatient and then residential and then partial hospital and the dad stayed the entire time that's amazing it was absolutely he knew. incredible he knew he, knew. he was up against he could not leave he had to stay there um and i asked the dad i go why did you come this far and he said y'all are the best that's great and i just love that he knew. Go, that's really cool yeah that's really awesome he knew what he needed to do for his child yeah that's really great all right can you think of any other examples of what parents sometimes kind of get stuck in. Oh, I, I actually thought about it while I was kind of rambling on. Um, is that there is a, a big difference in the world of eating disorder. Um, when parents sometimes will get stuck in the, well, this is a choice. Mm-hmm. Now, the only choice that I actually see the patient needing to make is the choice to fight. I agree. Because they don't choose an eating disorder. They didn't wake up one day and think, hey, anorexia or bulimia sounds really good. Um, it fall. It happens to them. It, they fall into it. There's no planning for it. I've never met a patient who planned to have an eating disorder. And then when they're in treatment, as sometimes as distressing as that is, and as hard as it is, and as being away from family, as difficult as all of that is, They have to make lots of choices. They have to make a choice to fight, whether it's uh, self-harm or cutting or scratching. Uh, They have an urge. They didn't choose to have the urge. They they can't choose to not have the urge. 
uh, they can't choose to have the urge or not have the urge to restrict or, or to purge. They don't make those kinds of choices, but they do make choices to seek help, to ask for help, to get support, to tell somebody, no matter what it is, they, we're, we surround them. There's so many of us that work at right. EFC. They, they, there are people with them constantly. The kids have an adult with them all day long. Yes. There's never a time that there's not an and adult. And all night long if there and is. And all night, right, right. Absolutely. So we're with the kids 24-7. We're the adults 24-7. And, and when they need something, there is always somebody right there that can listen to them and help them and think with them. Yeah. But we, you know, we've never been good at reading minds. <laughs> I don't think we ever will be. Uh, but when they ask for help and support, that is the choice. That's the choice that we're looking for is to use your voice. Well, and I love that you said the only choice they have is to fight. Mm -hmm. They even have a choice point on who or what they decide to fight, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. some kids, man, they have that fight. Mm -hmm. But they're channeling all that fight towards the team or towards oh, yeah. their family. And it's that moment when they turn that fight towards the eating disorder mm -hmm. that's just the most exciting moment in yeah. someone's treatment. Sometimes right? that fight is displaced and then they want to def defeat the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we see that all the time. Yes, I even outpatient. The caregiver. We still see it outpatient. Right. <laughs> right. They fold their arms. You can't help me. I don't care what you say. Yes, we'll exactly. Never get better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We get the question all the time, you know, in terms of meal plan and having dinner at home. Um, and I, I'm sure you guys have this question all the time too, because you have levels mm -hmm. of care where kids are starting to have more and more meals at I've home. I've got more answers right? like running <laughs> through my head right this second. You don't even know what I'm going to ask. I know, keep going. <laughs> um, do I pressure my child to eat it all or take another bite? Or do I remind them that the time is running out and come on, aren't you going to make a choice? Yeah. And why can't we talk about the food? And right. when will they start liking food again? Um, how do I know if they're restricting lunch? Do they really have to eat <laughs> with a nurse at school? All of those questions about food, right? Yeah. Parents right. parents really need help with all of that. So they give do. me all the answers even to the questions I didn't ask. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that was like 20 questions in a row yeah. really fast. Um, so uh, the, the thing that I, I thought you were headed towards um, was parents will very often ask me the question when they're in PHP or a lower level of care, what – what do I say when they say they're not gonna eat it? Okay, let's talk about that one. Right now, you you hit on multiple points. Mm -hmm. Talking about food, all of those sorts of issues, are about what we talked about really even before the show started. Front loading. Okay. Front loading. So when patients are about to step down, I will very often have them make eight lists four for mom and four for dad now each there's four categories and they make very specific examples to their parents and the the topics do more of this do less of this say more of this say less of this okay so i make them do that so that they give their parents instructions on how and how not to support them especially during mealtime so if the if the kid is telling the parent, I need you to take to tell me to take another bite. I need you to say you can do it. 
where other kids will say, don't tell me to take another bite. Don't tell me I can do it. It's too much pressure. Um, and, and some kids will say, it's, I need the exposure. I want you to talk about food. And some kids are like, please don't talk about food. Let's play a game. Let's do something different. So it really is very specific per patient. But if you front load it and you tell the parents first, it actually gives them a lot more information so that they don't sit down at the table with their kid in fear mm -hmm. of whether the kid's going to eat it or not. And so the other part of this is that I'm, I'm trying to help parents remember that this one meal is not the last meal of their life. It's one meal. Right. It's one snack. Yeah, let's take the pressure off. Take the pressure off. And if the kid says, well, I'm not eating that. Okay. I mean, it's your choice. Have you got a reason for that? Mm -hmm. So this is when I, this is when I love, like, I love naughty. I love when they're very <laughs> provocative and, and, and they want to be mischievous. And so that's, you know, when they, when they're giving their parents that, which they typically do when they step down, because they're in a sense, testing their parents to see if they can one, support them to be safe. Are they going to get mad? Is it going to be some old behaviors? Or is dad going to yell at me? And right, what's going to happen if I don't eat it? Well, the only way to figure that out is to not eat it and see because mm -hmm. they're kids. Yes. They have to touch it. They have to see it. Yeah, they have to test the water. Like when the waiter puts the plate down in front of me and he says, don't touch it as hot. Right. I'm going to touch it. Oh, yeah, totally. I do that, too. Every I want to see how hot it really time. is. I have to know. <laughs> so, so don't get mad at the kid because he tests the limits. That's his job. So almost celebrate it because then it gives you the practice to say, oh, you're not? Okay. How come? Do you have a reason? <laughs> well, you don't want to. Uh, you know, the kid says, I don't want to eat it. I'm too fat. Oh, really? Like, where's that coming from? So you just start asking questions, mm -hmm. you know, the question thing. But you're, you're actually doing it in a different affect But because right. you're getting is naughty. Right. Right? Yeah. And you can say to a kid, well, Guess you're not. I mean, okay. If you're in treatment, I mean, I mean, what's my job? I guess my job is to alert your team that you're refusing to eat your snack tonight. I mean, okay. I'm happy to do that. Listen, kid, I'm in it to win it, and I'm here to help you and support you. If you don't want the help and support, that's okay. But I'm going to do it anyway because my job is to help you win this war against your eating disorder. And I've got no illusions that I'm going to win every single battle. And if you're... If you want to win this battle right now, sounds like you're not going to eat it. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about? I it's, love it. I, I end everything with anything else you want to talk about <laughs> when they're being really naughty. Because right. I'll just jump right over it. So right. it sounds like you're going to make some decisions. Okay. Sounds like you're not going to eat it. Okay. And then you remind them, too, of what your role is. Right, which I is my role level is not, one, coming your way. Yeah, but That's not right. food police. I'm not going to mm -hmm. force feed this to you. I'm not even going to get upset. I'm not upset. I'm not going to yell. Yeah, this, this, the ball is 100% in your court. Yeah, it's all been front-loaded. It's all been talked mm -hmm. about. Oh, you'll know. I mean, I'll let your team know. I mean, what are, you, what is, what are your level one privileges again? Oh, that's right, coloring. Oh, you hate to color. Oh, I know. Well, okay. I mean... Yeah. If you don't want to color all night, I guess you might eat your food, but maybe it's more important to color and not eat. You make that decision. Yeah, that's that's up to you. Right. That's fine. That's fine. And so, so you don't I try can to win. I can see why that kind of coaching 
can be so valuable to parents, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. you said it, uh, that they come to you after a few nights of doing these types of strategies and they say this stuff is really working. Yeah, it is working, right? Yeah, don't chase them around, you know. If, and then if they storm off mad, they're guaranteed to toddle back. Right. They will come back to you. Right. Don't chase them to their room. But Let ultimately what, what we're doing, right, as, as clinicians is we're teaching parents how to raise the bar mm-hmm. and wait until the child rises to the occasion. Mm-hmm. We don't lower the bar. Mm-hmm. We don't do the work for them. No. We stay in our role. I'm the clinician. Uh, we have the parents. And then we have the kid. Right. We all stay in those roles. Right. And we kind of watch how it magically unfolds to. And I think the secret is the questioning. Mm-hmm. Because if you're asking the question, you're, you're constantly handing the ball of recovery right. back to them. Yep. This like, is your ball. Yeah. Right? I love Here that. This is your ball. This is your ball. Because <laughs> it's your food. It's, it's, it's your bite, chew, swallow. Right? You have to do that. I can't do that for you. Yes. You have to do that. And, I mean, the journey that parents go on mm-hmm. with even just that stance, mm-hmm. this is your ball. I right. can't do this for you. Yeah. It's a huge journey that, that we have to watch and support in the family therapy setting. Yeah, the, the parents can very easily get split and and get scared, really, is what happens, is the parent gets scared. The kid's scared, so then now the parents are scared. And then, well, I'll fix that, and you just let me talk to your dietitian, right. or you let me talk to your doctor, and, and, and I'm going to figure this out. Well, now the kid just leans back, and they're really just leaning out of their own treatment because they're going to let their parent figure it out for them. And so helping the parent understand that if the kid says, well, it was a terrible day because my meal plan was so high, the parent's response is, well, what, what got so hard for you? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, wow, that does sound hard because you're, you're being asked to eat more than you were when you got there. That makes sense to me. Did you talk to your dietitian about that? Yeah. Rather or, than I'll go do it. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Empowering the child. Empowerment is so key. There's people around you all the time. Yeah. We see these kids all the time. Absolutely. And even that's just a new skill set, right? Mm -hmm. It's developing while they're in treatment. Right. But it develops, right? And that's what's what's important is to believe in in the child's ability to to rise to the occasion. Because you're really, you're actually causing their brain to develop. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great point. Thank you for saying that. It is in mid-development. And you are, as those neurons rewire themselves, you are promoting neuronal development in a healthy way beautiful i think that's a really great place to end okay i love that you just said that right at the end so there you have it that's the red clinic podcast thank you so much for joining us today and i hope that you um you uh grace us with your presence again in the future dr wooten thank you i'd love to all right awesome